Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician. And this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm good. Yeah? I am great. We just got back from vacation. Um, we spent a... Uh, a, a, a uh, Which our listeners know, since uh, we talked about it, and then we uh, skipped the podcast last right. week. Right. I uh, completely dropped the ball and then neglected to bring a mic. Um, and anyway, it we would have been implausible um, because... Uh, I would say our vacation was, um, it was good. Uh, we did a good job making lemonade out of lemons. Um, but there were some real lemons that were thrown at us. Some of it COVID uh, induced and some of it uh, inexplicable. And one of the thing, the inexplicable aspects of our vacation, one of the inexplicable lemons of our vacation was our uh, Wi-Fi situation at our resort. Mm. So we stayed at Williamsburg, Virginia. And uh, uh, my, uh, my mother and father-in-law, uh, they, uh, they bought a timeshare uh, back in like 2005, 2006. That's actually a, a whole different story that's, that's kind of funny. Um, they accidentally bought a timeshare. And you might say to yourself, how do you accidentally buy a timeshare? Um, they, have, they have good friends. Christopher, you know them. Tony and Dottie Felici. Mm-hmm. Tony uh, married Kim and, Kim and me. United Methodist minister in uh, the suburban Pittsburgh area. Um, a, a godly man and just a general mensch. Um, and uh, he's good friends with uh, with my my in-laws, and uh, they were screwing around on eBay as one did in the 2000s when that was the thing <laughs> before Amazon, right? And looking up timeshares because they had just bought one and they liked it. And uh, Tony was he's a kind of a Boston Italian, New England still has the New England accent. Um, I apologize for my terrible New England uh, imitation. Anyhow, I'll give it up. So uh, he was like, "Yeah, Tom, just like look look it up." Um, uh, just place a bid, just place a bid to kind of see, like, get a sense for, um, you know, what the market is right now. Just so, you know, they, that, that in the future, when you, when you decide you want to get one, cause trust me, you're going to want one. And when you decide to get one, you, uh, you'll kind of know what the price range is. And then like he, uh, like, uh, 30 minutes later, he accidentally won the, uh, the auction. <laughs> so I've, I've never looked it up. I have no sense. Like our timeshare is $5,000, $20,000, $50,000. I have no idea. Anyhow, they accidentally had this timeshare, and they've subsequently come to love it. Um, that's, that's, in- good. that's good because because sometimes timeshares <laughs> or timeshare sales are kind of a, a joke of people who get suckered into buying them. So I'm glad uh, it's worked out for them. You have to have thick skin because every time you use your timeshare, you have to endure um, kind of a, an hour, two hour, uh, really pushy sales pitch um, to kind of more deeply invest. 
mm. uh, or be more involved. And uh, and you have you have to just kind of be be willing to endure a really effective sales pitches and just say no, no, like no, 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 and no. Oh, and did I say no by the way? And because um, you know how that- like good good salespeople kind of cast a spell on you. Like you're outside sure. the room beforehand, you and your wife look at each other and you say, we're not doing this. Stay strong. Yeah. And then like, you don't. Right. So they're, they're good at that. They, they endure all of that. And this year, my, my wife was just like, she told the guy at the beginning that when, when she checked in, she's like, uh, we have four children. So I don't know what you have in mind. Um, and he's just like, okay, here's the keys to your unit. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't even have to have to endure it this time. Anyhow. Um, I've, I've, it's 2020. I don't think I've had uh, this this bad Wi-Fi hmm. since um, probably 2007. Hmm. <laughs> Anywhere, um, twice my father-in-law summoned me, and in masks we stomped down to the registration office to uh, to complain about it. Um, I'm still teaching summer school, so I have I have some some hmm. actual not non-recreational things that I have to do. I have to check in with students and stuff. Um, and it was, it was, uh, truly unworkable. Um, and so in masks, my father-in-law is basically yelling at the registrar who's from some South Indian somewhere. And, um, all of that was sort of darkly comical and twice we were given gift cards. <laughs> um, but, but anyhow, had I even brought my, brought my microphone and my headset and, and everything, Christopher, there's just no way that we would have recorded. So here we are two weeks later. Um, Williamsburg, Virginia, I got to say, uh, I didn't, I guess I kind of knew, I didn't fully grasp how rich in history Southeastern Virginia is. Um, you've got Jamestown, which in, what is that, 1607, 1608 is the first English settlement. Um, and then the, uh, that's Virginia colonial capital until it's burnt down <laughs> by something called Bacon's Rebellion in the 1660s or 1670s. And uh, the, the capital is then moved to Williamsburg. Uh, listener, you perhaps have heard of Colonial Williamsburg, which is uh, they get really skilled reenactors to kind of give you a sense for what 17th century, 18th century life was. Um, they've got a rebuilt, faithfully rebuilt from Thomas Jefferson's architectural plans, uh, Colonial Palace, uh, not Colonial, Governor's Palace. Um, Patrick Henry was governor there. Thomas Jefferson was governor there until he made an executive decision to move I guess population centers were continuing to move north and west in Virginia from uh, kind of the James River estuary, the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and so they move it further inland to Richmond, which is now, um, now has ever since been the capital of Virginia. So it was great. Um, our, weekend was, our week was broken up into um, um, two history nerd dates. So we did Colonial Williamsburg and we did Jamestown and then three beach days. And uh, so that was great, especially I have a couple of a wife and a couple of kids who are really pasty and three can two or three consecutive beach days can really beat down hard on them. Man, I forget um, how relentless the southern sun is mm. in June. Christopher, how long has it been since you've been in the south in June? <laughs> uh, 13 years, maybe. Yeah, we are we are inveterate northerners, huh? It is the first day. The first day is a bit of shock. <laughs> well, I mean, the key to a successful beach day is getting an umbrella. Did you get an umbrella? Oh my gosh, my my in laws brought an umbrella, and my father in law, who's such a great planner, uh, a retired navy man, 
Um, and nothing teaches you kind of organization and planning like the Navy, particularly living on a sub like he did. If you forget something on a sub, you're like stuck. You're, you're out of luck for like six months. Um, he forgot, uh, he brought the umbrella, but forgot like the attachment. So we had like this comical three foot umbrella. I feel like we were crawling in and under. It was, <laughs> it's like a fort. Oh, it, it was, it was laugh out loud. Comical. Well, that's, that's where I would have been is, is I don't even care. Like that you can't sit up. I would have been just like lying down, crouching under the umbrella. <laughs> last, oh, last, yeah. uh, about a year ago, we were uh, out in, um, we did an East coast trip. My in-laws live near Philadelphia and, uh, we get out there when we can, of course, for a lot of reasons. Uh, there, there were a number of years where we didn't get out recently, but it used to be a, a semi-annual trip, uh, once or, or twice a year. And, Last year we got out there and and um, our kids just think the beach is the greatest thing. Uh, the, like the ocean, uh, uh, of course everyone likes sand and water. But um, so we took them to Cape May, New Jersey, the southern tip of New Jersey. Yeah. And um, I mean it was it was a it was a labor of love for me. I sat and sweated it out. But um, I want to say the first day we got there, uh, out of frugality, we said no, we're not going to rent an umbrella. I mean, there's little <laughs> rental stations, and it's like, oh, we're only going to be here for two hours. And then the last day, I think it was the same thing. Okay, like, we got to check out of our hotel, and then we'll leave by 11. So just for the morning, we're not going to spend the money to rent an umbrella. And, I mean, I just sat and, and cooked in the sun. <laughs> and every moment, I, I thought about why I'm so stupidly frugal. Okay, it is almost unendurable. A southern beach um, without an umbrella, right? I mean, it, it, is, it is essentially a necessity, almost as much as sunscreen. But okay, so the first beach day, we got there a day earlier, a day early than my, than my in-laws. And um, you know how I am on vacation. Like, I still set the alarm. I want to get up and do the thing early in the morning. So it was great. It was Sunday. Um, we, uh, we prayed morning prayer on, on the road on the way to the beach. Very proud of my 12-year-old son, Bryden, leading us in morning prayer. That was kind of inspiring and cool. And we get there by 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, um, which we didn't <laughs> the rest of the time with my mother and father-in-law who were um, definitely on vacation. They, they, they were small business owners, and so they're up early, and they were on vacation. They're like, no, no, no alarms, man, no alarms. Um, so uh, – what was I saying? Oh, we, we had, we didn't have my father-in-law's umbrella uh, the first day we were there. So what do you think frugal economic Kirk does um, without an umbrella to seek refuge from the sun? What was my solution? Uh, I'm not You're going to sure. love this. You're going to get a huge kick out of this. <laughs> we put all our stuff under the pier. We were those guys, <laughs> like the people, the, the trolls under the pier. <laughs> Which actually, that's shade, man. It's like larger shade than uh, than your umbrella would cast. Yeah, I, I feel mean, like the the only thing that you didn't do is charge people for walking on the pier. Yeah, this is the let's let's you let's work um, let's have a uh, a moment of honesty though. You and I, as Midwestern boys, Minnesota boys, Northwoods Northwoods boys, um, Woods and Lake boys, let's be honest b before we transition to the gospel segment today. Um, Christopher, how do we actually feel about the beach? It's terrible. Oh, man, it's the worst. Uh, like we, it's, we it's hot, and the 
and the ocean grosses me out. It is the sewer of the world. <laughs> Everything flows in there. Uh, so we're used to swimming in in spring-fed, clean lakes. Yes. Uh, and and yeah. the ocean is is just. I mean, people talk about all these polluted rivers. Okay, you know where those go? They go into the ocean. Christopher, can you experience the great delight of jumping or diving off of a rock into cool, clear waters at the ocean? No. No, you can't. I, lo- I love that. Um, I think you and I love, uh, we have happy memories from the beach for the same reason. It's because the people we love, love it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we look at those pictures and their happy voices and their laughter. I'm willing to sacrifice every year yeah. to take my kids there uh, yeah. because they think it's great. And, and I did too. Just, just um, uh, you know, our, our beaches that we're used to going to here in the Midwest on lakes, um, they don't have the incessant waves coming in. Right. Um, and so just the, just the standing there as a kid and the power of a wave coming yeah. in, um, uh, knocking you over, uh, or just watch it uh, standing on the beach and daring – the water to come up to you, uh, seeing how far the waves come up because right. you know every wave comes a different distance, or standing there as the wave goes back into the ocean and feeling the sand go out from under your feet. That feeling uh, of kind of suddenly you lose your balance. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Daphne. Yeah. Um, you you I, I sent you pictures, videos. That she spent like two hour chunks at a time. Yeah, doing just that. Like, well, yeah. Go running, running back as the uh, wave received. Yeah, yep. receded, yeah. and then sprinting back, back to the sand as the wave came in, and and gack, cackling and giggling. Yeah, last last uh, summer, yeah, we 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 would spend four to five hours um, on the beach, uh, and and our kids would be in the water the whole time. Right. For like four or five hours. Yeah, and not saying, oh, let's go back to the room. No. Oh, one last thing, and this is yeah. we joke, Kim and I joke, we. Uh, about sharks and someday one of us is going to get lose a leg or Christopher I <laughs> for the first time saw my first shark fin did you really it was a scene out of Jaws like the the panic and the screaming on the beach <laughs> <laughs> I mean everyone within 20 seconds um I, I I would estimate in our section of the beach I don't know I mean it was all socially distanced it wasn't wasn't super crowded in an unsafe way but like You've got, you know, 80 families in our section of the beach, right? All the parents are screaming into the water, pointing. <laughs> and, of course, the gulls are going crazy because there's chum in the water, you know, like uh, like parts of dead fish, whatever the shark was just eating. And then the dolphins are chasing after the shark. I guess I gather – I am not a marine biologist, so I, I, I gather – this is what my wife was telling me – the dolphins are just social creatures. Like anytime something <laughs> interesting is happening, they're like, hey – they're like the dogs of the ocean, I guess. Like, hey, that looks interesting. What's going on? So we're seeing fins, and I'm too stupid to tell what's a shark fin, what's a dolphin fin. And then my wife is telling me this is what a dolphin looks like as it surfaces and not. And I'll tell you what, man, it was it was cinematic. It was like out of a movie. Like the panic and the way people you you do not see it, an ocean, a beach empty <laughs> that quickly. Because <laughs> when you see shark fins. Yeah, I didn't tell you about that, did I? That no. stuff got stuff got no. very real very quick. And then like humans are we are very adaptable creatures. Within within 10 minutes after the gulls were gone and no nothing was sighted, it was as if nothing had happened. Everyone's back out in the water. So, That's great. Uh, 
Well, Kirk, I'm looking forward to, in, in two weeks, uh, you and I will be, since your life is a perpetual vacation, um, <laughs> you're, you are going back on vacation, and we are meeting up on the north shore of Lake Superior, up up in what we think of as God's country, Amen. and um, and we will love that uh, Not only will it be, be fun to be together, uh, like we love that place, so it'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shall we uh, Shall we move on to the gospel? Let's do it. Today's gospel uh, comes from the book of Matthew. Uh, as noted before, uh, we are in the book of Matthew all the way through uh, into uh, November, until uh, the end of November. So uh, this is uh, from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. So a short reading today. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows except the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a very short uh, reading today, but uh, really actually a the theologically dense one. Yeah. Um, those first three verses uh, t talk about kind of what we talk, uh, what we call special revelation. This idea that uh, certain things about God are are available to all people. That we that God is apparent to all people. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, uh, says the psalmist. So that's general revelation, but but then we believe that that God has uh, specifically revealed Himself. That we believe in a God who um, makes Himself known through self-disclosure. That God wants to be known, and that He has made Himself known in many ways. Uh, Hebrews chapter one is is a really good, uh, concise little uh, bit on that. Uh, as is John one. As is John one. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to pull up Hebrews 1 here. I'm not prepared. What is it? When in former times uh, he spoke or, or many times and, and in many ways. Yeah. Uh, but let me, let me actually read it yeah. rather than butcher it <laughs> by <Yeah>. memory. <laughs> Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, mm-hmm. whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And, and, and it goes on, that, that kind of prologue to Hebrews that's really, really uh, beautiful. Truly uh, beautiful. F- four verses. But it, it says something about how we know God. Um, and, of course, we didn't have access to those prophets. We have access to those prophets through the Word of God, through Scripture. And, and so we know God through the words of Scripture, and God's supreme revelation of himself is in Jesus Christ. And, and so there is wisdom of this world. There are wise people in this world. Uh, but our knowledge of God is only available uh, through God's self-disclosure, through his self-revelation. And uh, this is why reading the Bible and knowing the Bible is so important for you and for me. And um, so Jesus has this... this uh, uh, th- of course, everything is in context. This comes after uh, Jesus talking about uh, how certain cities have rejected him, that he has gone through God's revelation of himself. Jesus Christ uh, goes through these villages and is rejected. And uh, in fact, uh, this is consistent with what we th- see throughout Scripture, especially in First in Corinthians where Paul writes that um, – God has uh, chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and that the wisdom of God is is wiser um, than the wisdom of men. Um, that uh, wise people, apart from God's specific revelation, are just grasping, like they uh, are not seeing God. Um, and so, this is an important just theological idea that that we know uh, God through through uh, His disclosure of Himself in in the words of Scripture. And then that second half of, of this five verses, um, uh, we, we have uh, this famous, uh, it's actually part of our liturgy. We have what's called the comfortable mm-hmm. words following uh, the confession and absolution. Uh, this reminder of who God is and the nature of God. So um, we have this verse, we have uh, we have John 3.16 as a comfortable word. We have... Um, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And there's a fourth verse, which is uh, not coming to me at this moment, uh, even though I say it every Sunday. <laughs> um, but it's uh, later in Matthew, uh, in, in chapter 23, which we'll get to in November, uh, we have these seven woes of the Pharisees, and we see Jesus... Uh, say, uh, um, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Uh, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So uh, there's this sense in Scripture, and especially even in the book of Matthew, about uh, the law of Moses being burdensome, uh, especially when uh, Pharisees in that time would build a fence around the law. Their desire to keep the law, they were so zealous to keep the law that they said, we're not even going to come close to breaking the law, so we're going to build a fence around the law so we don't even come near breaking the law. And this was burdensome to people. And uh, uh, Jesus is is kind of showing that the whole point of the law was fulfilled in in, in his person. And he says, come to me. Um, you know, you're seeking um, holiness and salvation in the law. He says, come to me, uh, you who are heavy laden, who are bearing these great burdens, and I will give you rest. Uh, now, we need to hold this intention with, with the idea that there is a cost to discipleship, that there, that, that uh, 
God, Jesus is not saying that this is a life of of leisure. Uh, discipleship is not leisure. Uh, we're taking a new yoke upon ourselves. Um, so rather than yoking ourselves to the law, which is death, as it's interesting that this is paired with with Romans uh, in year A, and and we know that the law is 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 nothing but but death and condemnation. Uh, he says, "Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart." Of course. It's talking about the humility of Jesus, of taking the path of the cross, and you will find rest for your souls. So, I said this recently, not on the podcast, but actually on a Facebook Live uh, that I did. Uh, Which we should we should briefly uh, um, mention as well. You do hold uh, what biweekly, essentially biweekly. No, 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 no. Once a month. Once a month. Usually on a Tuesday. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say they're fantastic Q&A sessions. People yeah. ask improbable and fascinating questions, and it leads it always leads somewhere interesting that um, you, you would never guess. And there's a, there's a lively kind of chat session going on while it's happening. It's great, but I interrupted you. Yeah, and, and <laughs> I'll try to publish that. But, but uh, yeah, just check my Facebook feed. Usually I publicize it. Um, ask me anything. Uh, but I, people asked about the authority of bishops, and, of course uh, – the you know bishops are you know model christ in that they don't lord their authority over people that's right and and, ne- and neither do pastors and in fact um the very uh uh, uh the this the the stoles that we wear are symbols of a yoke like yes. the symbolism is that of a yoke that we are yeah. yoked to jesus that we don't have freedom and power but instead we are yoked physically uh, to Jesus. So so when I say yoked, I, I guess I didn't explain that, but picture what holds an ox to a cart or a, a team of oxen to a cart is a yoke, um, like a thing around your neck that, that, um, that you're pulling that. And so Jesus says, take my yoke. Um, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, uh, but it is a yoke. Yeah. So, so, so I'll, I'll, uh, close there my thoughts there and, and and hear what you have to say yeah i mean that is certainly um contrary to some american intuitions that we mm-hmm. have right um that we are autonomous creatures mm-hmm. um, who define the nature of our own existence um but but in christ we um um we do have a yoke we we but we serve the good master mm-hmm. right all of all of our masters that we've ever had all of our bosses are kind of a type and shadow of of the good master, right? The good shepherd, and um, and he's making that point, right? You, my yoke, will not feel like other yokes, um, and it is good for you. And uh, as as you walk the Christian walk, you you learn that that um, that you give up autonomy, but you gain a kingdom's inheritance in giving up that autonomy and serving the good king, the one true king. Um, I, uh, in the summertime, I work for my mother and father-in-law. Uh, I, they, they run a bed and breakfast with a, kind of a sprawling five acres. I don't know. I should know that. And I, I do groundskeeping stuff. And, uh, and um, these are hot summer days under the sun. And, uh, and maybe I burn a little bit or I'm sore or I'm thirsty. And, uh, and, and when, when I get called in for lunch, or when my wife kind of texts me and says, uh, I, let's, uh, let's, let's head home. Um, and I come in to air conditioning and I pour up a glass of ice water. It is the sweetest, coolest thing. Um, our old bishop, Bishop 
Robert Duncan, who was also the first uh, provincial archbishop of the uh, of the Anglican Church in North America, a, a, a saintly, godly man, um, when he would visit and speak these comfortable words, mm. of which verse 28 is is one, he would do it from memory from the old 1928 prayer book, mm. which has an interesting, I, I don't know, it's not King James, I looked that up, I don't know if it's an old Coverdale translation, um, but he would say, Come unto me, all ye that prevail, mm. and I shall refresh you. And there's mm. something about that verb instead, I shall refresh you, that um, speaks to my heart. And I think about, I, sometimes I think about that when I come in and water has never tasted so good after laboring, after travailing. <laughs> I am ye that travail sometimes in the summer. And so if you've ever worked under the hot sun and you've had that, that drink of water that is, that is the best thing that you can remember in a long time, that's what Jesus is trying to get at. And he is that. And in John, he says he is the living water. And so that's, uh, that's, that's uh, just a kind of a personalized uh, commentary. I think of that. I think of Bishop Duncan. I think of that. And I think of this passage oftentimes when I'm coming in from doing grounds work. <laughs> That's really good. That gets to the meaning much better than rest. Yeah. Because I think um, we think of rest as as kind of this perpetual um, uh, almost laziness. Um, But that's not that's not what what it's conveying. It's conveying refreshment from Mm. from uh, from hard uh, labor. Yeah. Um, Another friend that you and I have um, mutual friend has in his living room. This is a a collector of various ecclesiastical artifacts. He collects in his garage um, pulpits, uh, baptismal fonts, uh, altars from closed churches with with, uh, daydreams of someday finding a a home for them. Uh, And uh, and he has stained glass from a church that was uh, deconsecrated. And, um, and And it is Jesus in a standing posture with his hands outstretched at his side. And, um, and I believe that this is the verse in, in lovely Gothic style Roman numerals, M mat, M-A-T-T period, um, X-I-28, uh, X-X-V-I-I-I, <laughs> right? But, it, but yeah. this is the, the, the verse that's um, being cited and it shows Jesus extending his arms as if to say, come to me but in lovely stained glass. Um, and I, I think you've seen, you've seen that, um, that stained glass window. I think you've been in his house. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful image. If you've ever been exhausted in body, but more particularly in soul, um, the, the bodily exhaustion is sort of a, mem- uh, a metaphor for our soul's exhaustion when we've tried and tried and tried and um, we have failed ourselves, our God and those we love. We have one who with open arms will refresh us. And I just find enormous comfort in that. That's great. Are you ready to move on to our theology segment? I am. I am. Let's do our theology segment.
All right, so for our theology segment today, um, I, I'd like to talk about uh, established churches, um, or rather thoughts on what Christian, Christian unity is and how we should pray and seek it. And this was, uh, this was informed for me by, uh, by my trip to Virginia, um, which I, I, my travels in life have a handful of times led me through Virginia, um, but never have I lingered in old colonial Virginia, um, in the Jamestown, Williamsburg, in the Tidewater area, Chesapeake Bay area. Um, and this is where uh, England first uh, landed and is not first landed. That was Roanoke, but where uh, the, the first English settlement, and uh, where English culture, English people, and most importantly for this segment, English religion, uh, first got a toehold on this continent. Uh, and uh, you and I are are both Anglicans. Not all of our listeners are. Uh, it's interesting if you ever go through Virginia, particularly coastal Virginia, um, you've got all these lovely colonial architecture, stone parish churches, and they're not even called um, Episcopal churches, right? They're just uh, so-and-so parish, parish church, Bruton Parish Church, Jamestown Parish Church. And Christopher, why don't they have a name? Why aren't they called uh, St. Thomas Episcopal Church, Williamsburg, Virginia, or whatever? Well, there was just one church. There was no other church. There weren't different varieties or brands of churches. Um, and if you grow up an American evangelical Christian, um, as you and I did, and as many of you listeners did, you grow up, um, as a child, you don't, you don't kind of question or think through the situation you're in, right? How do you tell a fish that they're wet? How do you tell a, a pickle that it's been pickled <laughs> and not still a cucumber? Um, we grew up with a, an idea that um, being a Christian is sort of like looking at a menu. Um, there are so many different churches, so many different options. And hey, Christopher, you've often talked about how consumerism kind of influences us as American Christians. But I'm visiting uh, town after town, and I am, I am a uh, bit of an ecclesiastical tourist. I love visiting any old church in any town that I'm in. It's something I love to do. Um, I was reminded that Anglicanism once united all English-speaking Christianity. Um, or Anglicanism, th that name didn't even exist, right? The Church of England, I mean, that 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 name sort of existed, but it, it was just English Christianity. Um, Lord, may they be one. Father, may they be one as you and I are one. Our Lord prayed um, in John's gospel at, uh, at the end his last night with his disciples. And uh, America is so, our, our Christian landscape is so fractured. And I was reminded of that on this trip. And I, I think for us as Protestant Christians, um, we go long periods of time, and some of us maybe never, I never thought about this as a kid, mm -hmm. that schism is a sin and an offense. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it, when churches break apart, um, and there are times when we can make really good arguments that it's necessary, and you and I are part of church bodies that have broken apart several times, um, it, it is probably a last resort and, a, and an regrettable, grievous resort. Um, so I wanted to wanted to think through and talk a little bit about Christian unity, um, but I, I think we should probably tell the, tell a little story as to how we got here in English speaking Christianity. Once upon a time, <laughs> in uh, 
in the reign of King Henry VIII in the 1520s. Uh, Henry VIII, who, whom the Pope titled Defender of, Defender the, faith. of the Faith. Um, a, such a, such a good Catholic. Yep. Uh, there was a there was a a a a ferment of interesting ideas coming over from the continent. Uh, Martin Luther. Um, in in different events, 1517, 1521, um, there had been a splintering of the German church and uh, and fledgling new churches that would eventually be called Lutheran. Um, we now call this uh, the Reformation, churches splitting off from, uh, from what we now call the Roman Catholic Church. At that time, it was just the church. Uh, and uh, these or, intellectual... Or, or we, could say, we could say the church in the West. The church in the West, that's right. Yeah. Church, the church had split. Um, 500 years before that, east and west. Um, and so you have in the in the 1530s, you have the Church of England under the, the shepherding of two very smart and savvy Thomases, Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Thomas Cromwell, um, the, the key advisor to Henry VIII, um, splits from the Roman Catholic Church. And English-speaking Christianity from there on out is united um, for, almost, almost, for almost 80 years. Um, from the 1540s, for 100 years, from the 1540s until 1640, when a kind of a Puritan slash Presbyterian parliament um, arrests King Charles I, puts him on trial, and in 1645, he is actually, am I, am I mixing up dates? Is it 1645 or 1650? Oh, I should know this. He's actually beheaded and killed. Um, and something snaps in English-speaking Christianity. Um, there certainly there was disagreement um, in English Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. People who wanted the Reformation to go further, listener, you're probably familiar with this name. Uh, they're Puritans. Well, that, well, that, well that, that tension was always present. Sure. Um, but I mean, re- ever since the first prayer book was written in 1549. <laughs> that's right. Yep. One was re- a new one was re- released just three years later because it wasn't reformed. The first one wasn't reformed enough. Right. Uh, so, so I mean, this this tension was always present, but but Certainly. it was all all present in one in in the church. That's right. Yes. If you if you're familiar with the 1552 prayer book, it is much more reformed. It feels much more Protestant than the 1549. Very interesting looking at those two side by side. Queen Elizabeth's prayer book is the 1559 um, prayer book that is sort of the Elizabethan settlement. Is um, she is the the ultimate uh, uh, ecclesiastical diplomat and gets kind of traditional churchmen and Puritans, more radical reformers, to kind of agree and coexist um, effectively for another uh, 80, 80 years. Um, King James, and what it, when does the, is the King James Bible published? Um, King James has a very diplomatic solution in the early 1600s, um, in the aughts. <laughs> uh, he sees this growing uh, hostility between the, the Puritan party and the traditionalist party in the English church. And he said the date you're looking for is 1611 King James. Yes. Yes. And he, um, he gets them to agree on a joint project. That is a new Bible, a new English Bible that both traditionalists and Puritans will, will agree to sit at the same table and get excited about and work together on. And that kind of unites the English church uh, for another 40 years, but there really is a falling out. And this plays out this side of the Atlantic too. Um, We see this uh, under the reign of Charles II or Charles I, forgive me, in 1620. Charles I is a sort of a favorite of mine and other more kind of higher and Catholic-minded Anglicans. Um, he antagonizes, probably unnecessarily, unnecessarily 
uh, more Protestant and Puritan elements in the Church of England. And so you see um, the pilgrims in 1620 um, saying, we, we, can't even, we can't even exist in the English church. And they leave. And you have in 1620. And, and, and a synonym for pilgrim is, is separatists. Right, um, right. They were known as the separatists, yeah. Um, but it's interesting, Christopher, you and I were talking about this. There's not even a name for other denominations until after the restoration of the church in 1660 there's not a um presbyterianism is a um is a uh, philosophy is an ecclesiastical theory right it's not a denomination so if you're a presbyterian that means i wish we didn't have the house of bishops it doesn't mean i go to a different church um and uh and so once the king is killed <laughs> And the church is disestablished, and for 10 years from 1650 until 1660, there is no, no established church. It's sort of every, every hand for itself. And I, I should know more about that. I think maybe Presbyterianism actually is established during that period of time. Um, but with, uh, with the, the restoration of the church and the new prayer book in 1662, there's a name given to these people. They're called dissenters. And then slowly they become other denominations as there's their repeated acts of toleration um, as both monarchs and bishops have to acknowledge openly that not everyone is going to be part of the church and that people are just kind of doing their own thing and not coming to church anymore. And so this brings us to us in America now where this is a story that's not told. We don't kind of know of our original schismatic sin, how we all just kind of left and made up our own churches because we didn't like what was happening in, in the English speaking church. And you and I grew up Methodist, for example, um, John Wesley, for for really interesting and complicated reasons, have created his own church. And uh, I just want, just, uh, I'd, I'd cause to think about this and to mourn it. Um, it is increasingly a cause of mourning for me. Um, I don't, I don't have any, uh, any necessary answers, just kind of more observations and questions in this segment. Um, but there is, there has been, you and I were talking about this, Christopher, and I'm monologuing, so I'm going to shut up in just a moment. Um, in 1908, uh, there was, uh, this was actually started by a, by a Catholic monk, a Franciscan monk. There was established something called the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. And you and I have recently become aware of this. This is from January 18th through January 25th. And this has gained momentum in the last hundred years and is observed now by many, many churches where we spend an entire week praying um, that, that somehow, in some way we can't picture or understand, that, that uh, Christians would be drawn back together. Uh, and, and I promise this is the last thing I'll say for a moment. I'm going to give you your piece. I often say, I have a mantra, when anything like this comes up, I say, the goal is always unity. The goal, the goal is always unity. And when it becomes plausible for me, again, as an ACNA member, to become, uh, again, an Episcopalian, I should do that. And when us as Episcopalians, when it becomes plausible for us to be reunited with the Western Catholic Church, we should do that. And if our goal isn't reunion, we've, I think as Protestants, which I am, I'm a Protestant, I'm not a crypto-Catholic, we've lost the plot. If we're not actively trying to reunite, we, we've forgotten the point. So, all right, I will stop. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you have uh, some interesting things to say, I know, um, to kind of cap off the discussion, uh, because there has been... Uh, kind of ecumenical progress um, mm -hmm. discussions between uh, between denominations, um, even between interesting uh, the Roman Catholic Church and and the Lutherans. Um, of course, to say the Lutherans is 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 inadequate because like there is no single Lutheran church. 
um, even the Lutheran uh, world is is divided. Uh, so, so I guess uh, I'll I'll say it here. Uh, even though this kind of uh, maybe this will be a preview of our next segment, our culture segment, uh, but we are watching The Crown, and uh, of course we are reminded in uh, season two. Uh, there's an interesting episode where there's some criticism from a peer. Uh, I forget his name, Lord something. He runs a newspaper, um, but some very vocal criticism of of Queen Elizabeth and how she's and, and and he said, you know, I'm not against the monarchy. I just think it should be reformed. He has some very specific criticisms, uh, and Elizabeth happens to mention that she is not only the sovereign, but she is the head of the of the English Church of the Church of England, here, here. Uh, which which. Uh, is an in interesting thing to say and an interesting arrangement. And I'm curious what uh, th – that's not something that I'm super comfortable with, the, the sense of a, of, of a uh, non-bishop being uh, – calling herself head of the church. <laughs> um, but that is the arrangement that England has had. And, and, uh, w and as we discuss what Anglicanism is uh, – it, you know, it is this global church of more than 80 million people worldwide uh, who don't and, – and, and, of course, you and I do not um, acknowledge the queen as the, as the head of the church. And this goes back to the American Revolution um, that, uh, in fact, the, the church had a minor crisis because uh, its, its bishops and priests would have to uh, – would be required <laughs> to acknowledge her as, as, as sovereign, and no American could do that. Um, and, and so that started interesting conversations about exactly what English Christianity is. What this, like, is it just the Church of England worldwide? No, the Church of England is one, one of many global provinces. Um, and, uh, do you, do you not remember clear... the solution? Do you remember the solution to that, to ordination without acknowledging the, uh, the, the King of England as sovereign? Go ahead. Scottish bishops. Oh, okay. Well, they got so, Scottish so bishops so to consecrate. You them. need three bishops to consecrate. Um, yeah. So you need three bishops to consecrate. Uh, and so we had Seabury. Um, was Seabury Scottish? Or was it Seabury from England and then one – and then two Scottish? I don't remember. I It's one of those things that I'd learned and have since forgotten. But yeah, yeah. So – but um, the idea is that bishops are defenders of the faith, and you need three bishops to to consecrate a, a new bishop, and then a bishop can can uh, ordain a priest to do to to do the work of the church and to be the church. And so we have all these uh, bishops worldwide. Where is the church? You know, it, you know, find your find the closest bishop. Um, and of course, we have other things to say about. Um, so that's where the the Anglican Church is now. The Anglican Church. Um, in uh, the, the Chicago Lambeth quadrilateral and in our articles um, is very, very uh, ecumenical and very uh, generous, I think, in, in what it defines as, like, what is the church? Um, uh, and and that, that could be a, maybe part two of this is, is um, of, of Catholicity, uh, small c, you know, this idea of being uh, one, one uh, invisible church worldwide. But... Um, it's not clear today what what Anglicanism is because there are there are divisions, um, uh, and and um, th there is a the, the majority of the of global Anglicanism is united in what's called Gafcon, 
um, this global uh, association of, of, of confessing Anglicans uh, who, um, in this crisis of the church and, and essentially orthodoxy, has gathered together to, um, to write the Jerusalem Declaration and, and to kind of um, define es es essentials. And so um, I, I just wanted to raise the point of, of uh, the, the problems of, of a monarch being the, the head of the church and the problems that that caused in England and in the colonies elsewhere. And so um, we shouldn't neglect that, um, that, uh, that, that there, there were politics involved. Um, but this, this idea of there being kind of one church where, where we can actually influence each other is very important. Uh, and, and, and Anglicanism as we know it today, and certainly as you and I practice it, um, it hasn't been, the way we practice it isn't the way it was practiced every year um, since uh, the church started worshiping in, um, in, in the vernacular in, in English. So there's some really interesting things to talk about <clears throat> as far as um, the influence we can have on each other. And so maybe we could segue from that into um, maybe a conversation ab about like what has been, what, what progress has been made. Uh, so it's easy to have a conversation inside of, of a church, uh, of, of a, a church that's united, um, it, to have differences and to, and to raise those and to discuss them. But Kirk, what are some ways that, that uh, churches, d distinct churches, have, have uh, made joint declarations? Yeah, so um, interesting, well, interestingly, uh, there was a, a growing awareness um, in Anglicanism, in the Church of England, um, that that um, uh, warmer relations with Rome were, were probably a uh, a good Christian impulse, and in fact, the the first uh, a kind of conference of bishops that that sent an official telegram to the Pope. <laughs> um, this was at a conference, I think, in the uh, like around like 1905 or 1900. Mm -hmm. It was like the Bishop of Zanzibar. And a couple of other Anglo-Catholic bishops sent an official telegraph to the telegraph to the Pope, telegram to the Pope, and it was the first time that there had been any acknowledgement of the Pope as being anything other than than Antichrist <laughs> in the Church of England in like 300 years. And so that was the, that was the start. And until Vatican II, um, uh, the po uh, the papacy, both officially, both in theory and in practice, uh, treated us as schismatic heretics, uh, not worthy of as discussion partners, but there's something called the um, the ecumenical movement, um, which I don't know much about in the 1950s and 1960s, um, and especially after Vatican II in the 1960s, uh, the Roman Catholic Church became really open and, and made good faith efforts to kind of reach out in prayer and discussion with other Christian bodies. And so I had written down a couple of things. Um, uh, we, uh, as Anglicans, and I'll stop being so Anglican-centric in just a moment, in 1966, something was established. This is so tedious. This is so, like, bureaucratic. The Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, often called ARCIC, which is a really dumb set. I always think of Arctic every time I hear, like, Anglicans or Catholics talk about it. But there exists this official body now um, uh, between Anglicans and Roman Catholics called ARCIC. Um, and, uh, and it has been a source of conversation and um, collegiality. Um, there's also been uh, 
the revised common lectionary, that is the cycle of readings, um, mm -hmm. was done in conjunction with Roman Catholics in the 60s, which is, or 60s or 70s, I forget when that was, forgive me, listener, if I'm like off by 20 years and it was done like 1988 or whatever. But um, this is a huge deal that we're now reading the same lessons on Sundays as the Roman Catholic well, Church. We were our new. We have a new lectionary, the new prayer book that that it's, that departs here and there. Here and there. Here and there. Yeah. When it departs, it departs by making sure not to skip verses. I think oftentimes, but anyhow, um, we have uh, there. There is a Lutherans and Catholics, which that that divide is 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 deep and um, mm -hmm. and and real, um, and it was over the doctrine of justification by faith in many real ways in 1999. Um, there was the Lutheran Catholic Joint Declaration on Justification, where the majority of the world's Lutherans um, signed on to a joint declaration on the on the very doctrine that divided them. Now, uh, there are complexities and subtleties there, and you wonder um, how the Catholic Church exactly agreed to Lutheran. Uh, yeah, yeah. It is interesting. <laughs> Lutheran formations on justification. So I think the, some yeah. of the language was slippery and diplomatic, but they were trying and they, they right. got signatures. And that, that I think that matters and that's real. Mm -hmm. um, for us in the ACNA, we have altar pul pulpit fellowship with an, a Lutheran organization called the NALC. What does that mean, altar pulpit fellowship? That means that they can come and celebrate Holy Communion um, as supply priests for us um, and vice versa. Um, we have been in talks with the LCMS, uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which is the largest confessional Lutheran body in North America. I know the Episcopal... And, and, and there haven't been just talks. I mean, they've, there's been published papers yeah. on kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which, which makes my heart happy. Uh, you and I grew up with a, with a mother who was a, um, a Missouri Synod, and kind of that was very near and dear to, to her and she uh, she ran th would run through Luther's catechism with me, and so that's kind of left a mark with me. Um, uh, the Episcopal Church and the ELCA have a, have a tight fellowship mm -hmm. as well. ELCA is kind of the more more moderate uh, Lutheran body. Um, so so all we'll these... say we'll say mainstream main main mainline yeah. Yeah. yeah mainline um, mainline. All these are are real efforts at recognizing that um, that this alphabet soup. Um, is uh, is an offense to our Lord, and um, and and is not a good confession to the non-Christian world. Um, anytime, if you've ever been in a conversation with a non-Christian, and you have to go into this five-minute preamble mm -hmm. of what you are, but what you're not, or whatever, and um, and you begin to kind of realize, you kind of get shame in the pit of your stomach, and you're like, but it shouldn't be this complicated. Explaining I'm part of this, but not part of this, and it came from this, and it came from that. Um, so uh, the last thing that I had kind of written down was current obstacles to reunion. And there are, there are some real obstacles. Um, one of them, one of the genies that's not going back in the bottle, and I think this podcast should remain officially um, agnostic on, um, just because we have listeners that are on both sides of the issue, is women's orders. Mm. Um, so they're, they're, uh, the orth Orthodox Church does not ordain women. And I, I think it's really safe to say never will. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church does not ordain women, and we can't make windows into men's souls. I would imagine Pope Francis would like to, but there's the weight of the magisterium and of tradition makes that so unlikely. Um, and who knows? Who knows what may happen? 
Um, there are some Protestant churches that do and some that don't. We have a complicated picture within Anglicanism in which we have some provinces that do, some that don't. We've, even within some provinces, we have some dioceses that do and some that don't. Um, and I think the best thing that we can do is muddle on together, um, praying that the Holy Spirit find a third way out that isn't apparent to any of us. Um, but that is a real obstacle to unity. There's, there are a couple of anecdotal stories. Um, Archbishop Michael Ramsey, the Archbishop of Canterbury of the Church of England in the 70s and 80s, when he got the call that uh, the American Episcopal Church had, had um, he got it in the, at 3 a.m. because it had happened at general convention here um, in the evening. Uh, when he got the call that the Episcopal Church had gone ahead with the ordination of women, he had just earlier that day been on an ecumenical phone call with the patriarch of Constantinople. Hmm. And um, evidently he wept and couldn't go back to sleep. Um, so, I mean, it is, it is a source of division. Not, not because <laughs> necessarily because it's lamentable to ordain women, but because um, it, there was a better way of doing that to say like America should have gone to the globe and said, let's have a conversation about this. Um, this isn't something right. they just go do in your corner. Well, he felt like he was having real progress um, in right, ecumenical right. conversations with orthodoxy. And, yep. and immediately that door was slammed shut. So that is, a, that is an obstacle. Um, and there are other obstacles. But I, I'm, I'm like in an oddly optimistic place in the last six months. And 10 years ago, I was in a really pessimistic place about Christian unity. I, I'm increasingly a believer in the power of the Holy Spirit um, to preserve the thing that he promised to preserve. Kurt, so are, I know are, that are, sounds Pollyannish, but... Are, are you getting ready to call yourself a charismatic? <laughs> On that matter, amen, I am. All right, join us. Yeah. Should we uh, do, do a culture segment briefly? Let's do it, but not briefly. All right. So for a culture segment, you and I have both been watching British costume dramas. And we're fascinated as to why we as Americans are um, right now, in the last probably 10 years, 15 years, certainly the golden age was kicked off by Downton Abbey. Um, and now everyone is subscribing to BritBox. And uh, we're, why? What's this all about, Christopher? <sighs> That's a great question. I wish I had a good reason why. It's interesting. My wife is a woman of science. I don't know if I've talked about that here, about how uh, she's brilliant. Um, of course, she's she's a doctorate. Um, but like, uh, I remember when uh, she was working um, in graduate school, and um, she was like 
talking about uh, some disease or something that's more prevalent in people um, uh, in the Iberian Peninsula. And she was like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> and, like, you know, it was just kind of shocking to us that, that like, someone would – and it's not that she's um, – it's not that she's not smart. It's that she had no interest in geography or history or, or the things that, that just kind of interest me um, and, and you t as, as well to, to not really know. Um, and, and she is just a growing interest in, in, in history. And it's funny how she thinks I know everything. So she'll ask very specific questions. And I'll be like, oh boy, I, I don't know. Like, uh, but like – one of her favorites is called the midwife. And I think she just, yes, um, Kim loves that too. I think she just really likes just learning uh, about kind of our heritage as far as, um, you know, it's, it, one of the things that interests her a great deal is, is um, really uh, what's the word I'm looking for. Uh, just women just didn't have a lot of rights back then. And, and kind of like what that movement looked like. So the, the, so the, the show is about, um, of, of course, women uh, uh, who are having babies, a midwife, you know, um, and, uh, and and we see uh, abused women and, and women kind of uh, kind of stuck in relationships. Uh, and it's even interesting in The Crown to see uh, th there's this woman of, of, of uh, Prince Philip's aide. Philip's aide's wife uh, is trying to file for divorce and like there's only you know three you know things uh, that you could three reasons for divorce and one of them is infidelity but you have to find <laughs> proof evidence of infidelity uh, which uh, in which someone uh, in this case they had to get this woman to come forward and publicly shame herself by saying yes I I um, I slept with him you know or you'd pay a photographer to take a staged picture of you yeah. just in bed with some random person even if nothing happened, just as like quote evidence unquote for infidelity. Yeah. So I, I think just uh, the social history is interesting. Uh, I, so it's it's more than just looking at pretty things, which of course uh, Downton Abbey would be a great show to watch just on mute. Just like, it would the be sound beautiful. Off, yep. Yeah. Um, and uh, Call the Midwife, I don't think would be necessarily, but my wife just loves uh, period TV. Uh, but I think I, I think uh, our interest is beyond the beauty that it, it's beautiful, but also, um, it's kind of a window into where we came from, where we've been, and how that influences us today. Um, certainly, the Crown. Uh, I've, I've never been a big um, supporter of the Crown. <laughs> uh, you and I would certainly differ there. But uh, watching it, um, I, I certainly do have an appreciation for the person Elizabeth is. Um, and the difficulty uh, navigating um, from post-World War II period um, into present day. I'm only on season two, but it is, it is um, the, 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 the wisdom beyond her education, beyond her age that she was able to bring to it. Uh, it it's really remarkable. And in Downton Abbey, we see, um, it's funny uh, how polarized we are today. Um, uh, I think there's a very simplistic uh, criticism of kind of class uh, politics where um, there's the haves and the have-nots. But when we look at the, at the actual house of Downton Abbey, um, the generosity of, and the duty this family felt um, 
to provide jobs and to care for their 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 land in their area uh, is tremendous. Um, well, that that concept has a name in the old aristocracy. Felt it keenly as a value, and that's called noblesse oblige, which means um, what the nobility are obliged to provide mm-hmm. for those in their care. Mm-hmm. And uh, one would have to say America's current aristocracy, often called the meritocracy, as a portmanteau of those people who are merit, have merit, right? Like the smart and who have become the new aristocracy, right? Silicon Valley, people in Washington, D.C., in finance in New York. Um, they feel zero noblesse oblige, zero. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that might be part of what we look and marvel at when we, um, when we see... Um, the Downton Abbey, right? Like the relationship between upstairs and downstairs. Um, I, I think there's certain there's there's a um, there's a vertical uh, organic unity to society, which was even more riven by class than ours is now. I think a good argument could be made that we are increasingly class riven now in a way we've never been. But there is still an organic unity um, when the rich are so rich and the poor are so poor. And yet it would never, um, they, they live together as one. Let's not romanticize that, of course. But yeah, I think, I think that's, that's part of the appeal of Downton Abbey. I just watched uh, another costume drama by Julian Fellows, who is the, uh, the, the pen and the brain behind Downton Abbey and some other British things that you might have seen that you wouldn't be aware of, um, listener. Um, and uh, he, Julian Fellows is kind of a, an upper crust toff from Britain. Hmm. He like knew Margaret Thatcher. He knew every Roger, Sir Roger Scruton. Um, he just kind of traveled in like a genteel Tory circles in Britain. But he's a good author as well. He writes novels and then became a good screenwriter and he wrote Downton Abbey. And this was Belgravia that I just saw, which was on epics. Um, and uh, uh, he, Julian Fellows has a, has a really interesting moral vision. And you and I have talked about this, Christopher, as well. Um, with uh, with some of the uh, some of the the conflict and the conflict resolution within Downton Abbey, there do seem to be Christian undercurrents. Um, he has a has a has a Christian sense of grace. Um, yes, which a lot of our current culture um, is is lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, we have several fallen characters in Downton Abbey that are redeemed. Um, or, or I mean, just the doctrine of justification um, in um, a character who is raped, yeah. and she takes that on as her identity, yep. and her husband looks at she her and he says, says... She assumes that will define her for the rest of her yeah. life. And her husband says, but I interrupted you because you're getting well, to the, the climax. Well, her husband says, and, and I hope you remember the line because I don't, but it's, 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 it's an explicit doctrine of justification, an alien righteousness. He yes. says, like, I don't, I don't see you that way. That's right. She says, but I, no, she says, but I am dirty. I am damaged. And he says, no, to me, you are spotless, white as snow. Mm. Yeah. Which Powerful. I mean, that's <laughs> right. That is imputed righteousness. That's yes. I, I mean, for both you and I, you and I both talked about how that produced tears. Mm. Um, that is yes. the gospel. <laughs> yeah. um, and we have Thomas, the butler, who you, uh, in the first several seasons of Downton Abbey, you hate. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he as well, um, ends up confessing to several people that he is an awful person and is loved by several people, despite his awfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is, he is, uh, 
so I can't use the word rhymes with witchy, right? Wouldn't you say at the character, <laughs> right? Isn't that what he is? That's the essence. Oh, of he's terrible. He's a backbiter, backstabber. Oh, he's a gossip. Uh, yes, a conniver. And um, and he, yet he's welcomed he, back into open arms and yes. made. He, he's made the next butler, isn't he? Yes. The house. He runs the house. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's amazing. He is the character. He is the the debtor. Uh, but but instead of in the parable, he because he has been forgiven his heart cracks and he learns to forgive as well. Um, and so I, I love the moral vision of Julian Fellows. Um, he, there, I, have a, I have a pet peeve about English costume drama, dramas that the vicar is always either an idiot or a gambler or an atheist. And Julian Fellows falls into that crap as well. <laughs> That's just a pet peeve of mine. Do you notice that? It's ne he's never a godly man, which, um, you know, yeah. we all have criticisms of the clergy, but most vicars across the fruited plain, most clergy across the fruited plain are doing their, their faulty best. And I what wish is, that fiction would, would, would capture that. Sidebar, uh, <laughs> aside here, um, what, what is that um, movie, uh, a period movie where um, there's a very memorable scene of full frontal male nudity of the vicar skinny dipping with, uh, yes! with the dude? What, what, uh, what am I thinking is of? That a, is that a room with a view? That's what I was thinking, was but is that right? I, yeah, I, I can't remember, but yeah. Which are uh, the he, and the vicar is a silly, silly man. Yeah, he's a silly man. Yeah. Right. And who, who like has the, the foolish judgment to go skinny dipping with like local kids. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah so I, I, I don't know that I have any, any deep insights. It's just fascinating that we, that we love this. So um, I wonder, I wouldn't be surprised if Jane Austen were more popular in America than in Britain. Huh. I think we have authors here that we particularly love. Um, it's just like, I, I think I've been told, and this may be anecdotal and not correct, that um, Westerns are more popular in England than they, are, um, than they are here. Do you remember, Christopher, you and I, the summer that we spent in England in 1998, being asked with a straight face if we had ever been shot at or been in a gunfight? I don't remember that. I, I, I think that uh, kind of uh, the English have this vague, fuzzy, unformed sense um, that America is this freewheeling, uh, gun-toting place, um, which, which, of course, gets at something, but is, is, is comically uh, oh, yeah. off, off the mark. Just as we, like, we're kind of disappointed when we meet someone from England and they have kind of a trashy East London accent instead of sounding um, like an Oxford Don or... Or like somebody from these period costume dramas, right? But yeah, but but I think I think it probably goes both ways a little bit. Probably. Yeah. And any 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 further thoughts on the matter? Uh, none other than to just recommend uh, *Downton Abbey*. Certainly, I know it's oh, derisively so uh, referred to as as a, a soap opera, uh, but uh, th I that's. It's it's a human drama. Uh, so if 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 Downton Abbey is a soap opera, then I guess any any kind of engrossing um, any drama. Then yeah. Friday Night, yeah. Then Friday Night Lights is a, a soap opera. Well, here's what makes it not a soap opera. It is a fully built out world. Yeah. Um, and uh, soap operas, you, you you've got just a couple of character conflicts that drive the whole thing. And this is a, a just like with Tolkien. Or, or other kind of world builders or George Martin in Game of Thrones. In Downton Abbey, in Julian Fellow's world that he's created at Highclere Castle. Um, is Highclere Castle the, the real place or the... No, no, that's, that's the real place. It, 
That's where it's filmed. filmed uh, yeah, but yeah. Highclere Castle is in the south. In yeah, but Downton Abbey. Down supposed to be up in York. In York, yeah. Up in the north. They're, yeah. they're constantly going to market at Ripon. <laughs> but it, but um, but Downton Abbey is this fully built out world that you can walk around in and spend years in, just like you could in Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. So, and you can't say that about a soap opera. So. Yeah. So so I would recommend uh, watch Downton Abbey. I think it's just coming off of a service or just did maybe at the end of June. Uh, but uh, I would recommend that. I would recommend The Crown, even though I'm only in, yes. in the second yep. season. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, I, Claire Foy, uh, before we were recording, uh, I just mentioned how much I, how impressed I am with her, uh, with the accent, uh, you know, speaking as the queen. Uh, I, I haven't had a chance, but I would love to just um, go to YouTube and listen to her in interviews just to hear how different the accent is because she nails the queen's accent. Mm. It's It's really remarkable, but I mean, that's not, a reason to watch this show but it's 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 a uh, a powerful show about duty you know how we talked about uh you know christ's uh language of you know the, how the gentiles uh lord their authority over others mm-hmm. you might think of a of a monarch as as having all this authority but when you watch her live her life and just um the duty she has um as queen uh and her daily workload uh, it's it's not enviable. Yeah, yep. No, I mean, duty, capital D, is, mm-hmm. I think, the theme of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, I mean, you've seen recently in the royal family, that was the great shock to Meghan Markle and what she couldn't handle. <laughs> She's privately said, like, um, my whole day is spoken for, my week, my life. Um, and I think in well, private Well, it's funny, we think of, we, we think of uh, them as so rich, but... Uh, like the the amount of money uh, public money spent on them is actually quite small uh you know especially compared to oh to our presidency which is a monarchy at this point the modern yeah. the 21st century american presidency is a monarchy there certainly is a percentage of per capita income we spend more on oh, oh, on the presidency than... and and the lives of of celebrities are far more lavish yeah. uh yeah. so yeah yeah i think that's that's a good spot to end uh let's end in prayer Would you like me to lead this week? Yes, I would love that. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Grant us, O Lord, we pray, the spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who can do no good thing apart from you may be enabled to live according to your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night, for the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Hey, awesome, Christopher. Thank you so much. Next week, man. Next week.